welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Well, where's Jeff Rogan? Jeff Rogan. Um, you were talking football earlier. Something the Bills, Super Bowl, some nonsense. Um, but did you not? Am I remembering right this morning, right down here in this corner? Were you talking football when you told me to go long today? Because you said go long, right? I thought, I thought that's what I heard you say. So it's, it's, it's all on Jeff Rogan today if I go long. Folks, we're back in Acts chapter 13, and um, we're going to finish that up today. And keep your finger in, in Isaiah chapter 49, uh, kind of find your way to 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, as I've titled today's message, The Gospel According to King David. The Gospel According to King David. There, there has been a lot of ink spilled. Uh, by theologians concerning the extent of the theological understanding under the Old Covenant, uh, those Old Covenant saints, uh, their understanding about Jesus Christ. You know, some even question uh, whether King David himself understood there would be a physical resurrection and a whole new life after death. And uh, surely believers in the Old Testament did not have the the riches and the wealth and the expanse of revelation, the fullness of revelation we enjoy ourselves today in the New Testament. In the New Testament, uh, but as both a prophet and a king, uh, David did benefit from divine revelation granted by the same Holy Spirit who indwells us today. I believe this could have been turned into a, a, a great Christmas text, actually, uh, yet we land on it here today. Did King David and Israel, Israel's prophets, believe in the resurrection of Christ and an, and an afterlife of all his redeemed? And as we seek an answer to that question, I'll begin with this exhortation from 1 Peter Chapter 1, verse 10, uh, the Apostle Peter writes, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come, uh, would come to you, made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Well, as we open our Bibles to Acts chapter 13 today, uh, we'll be encouraged to find that not every place is, is, is as spiritual, ro- spiritually rocky, as desolate as the island of Cyprus had proven to be. If you recall from last Sunday, Paul and Barnabas had blanketed that island with the gospel But Acts records only one convert to Christ. 
And I do wonder if that, those discouraging results are, are a contributing reason to John Mark's decision, you know, to leave the mission field early and to return to Jerusalem. Uh, no one really knows for sure why Mark left, but later Paul will strongly resist taking Mark again on a future trip in chapter 15. Uh, there Paul is going to classify Mark as a deserter. Uh, but Mark was very young. Uh, many weeks of navigating Cyprus had, had only brought one person to faith, only saw, only saw Sergius Paulus uh, trust in Christ. Uh, that would be disheartening. And uh, throughout the ages, low numbers have caused uh, countless pastors and missionaries to desert the ministry. Uh, many of them regret later on not hanging in there a little while longer. You know, Mark fled before there was even any documented persecution, uh, so perhaps he was discouraged. We'll find out more on that later. And uh, when we commit ourselves to evangelism, as this church is doing uh, right now, we Christians, we've got to fight off that discouragement and refuse to quit early. Now, there, there may be a breakthrough just around the corner. And, and coincidentally, as Paul and Barnabas persist in spreading the gospel, they begin to, to experience some more encouraging results uh, in a region known as Galatia. They are results that will also invite persecution on Paul and Barnabas, uh, the duo, by the end of our passage. But this map here from, uh, from last week uh, shows one more time how the team has, has sailed north from Paphos uh, in Cyprus uh, to Perga and Pamphylia along the coast, and then they drive hard north into Antioch, uh, a second Antioch in the region of Pisidia, different Antioch than the one that we studied earlier. In a synagogue, they're going to be invited to speak. Uh, giving Paul an opportunity to recount all of Israel's history uh, for the Jews there. He, he supplies actually details that are very reminiscent of Stephen's sermon back in Acts chapter 7. And uh, we will discover that Paul proclaims Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promise to King David. That, that is the Davidic covenant the Lord's promise to seat an heir upon David's throne forever. You'll also notice as we read that as Jesus is proclaimed, several Jews, uh, including some converts to Judaism called proselytes, uh, they will at first embrace what they hear. But continuing a pattern we observed in Jerusalem, uh, once Gentiles are invited to trust in Jesus as Messiah also, as soon as they hear that Jesus is the Lord of all the earth, many of the ethnic Jews become outraged at Paul and Barnabas, and, and like a broken record keeps repeating itself, you know, Jews just despise the fact that the Gentiles have been grafted into the new covenant by faith but without even circumcision as a prerequisite, uh, yet scripture assures this is what was promised, exactly what was promised long 
ago. But after Paul employs the passage uh, that I read to you earlier in Isaiah chapter 49, keep your finger there for later, uh, they will drive, the Jews and the proselytes will drive that duo straight out of their district. Let's, let's read together beginning in Acts chapter 13, uh, verse 13, this full account of Antioch. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. After these things... God gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom, I, whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought a, to Israel a Savior, Jesus, after John, referring to John the Baptist, had proclaimed uh, before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And while John was completing his course, he kept saying, Who do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. But behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither Jesus nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these, fulfilled these prophecies by condemning him. And though they found no guilt for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took Jesus down from the cross and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days, Jesus appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. 
As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, God has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things, from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Therefore, take heed, so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel, and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. So at, Paul adds this, this warning from the prophet Habakkuk saying, don't you, like your ancestors before you, dare to disbelieve this. Verse 42. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them were urging them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. So now the crowd is filled with Gentiles. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, and the following quote comes from Isaiah 49, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the, Gent when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many had been appointed to eternal life, believed. It's called election. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But Paul and Barnabas shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were continually filled with the joy and with the Holy Spirit. Wow. Well, I know that is a, an unusually long text today. But I, I don't want us to risk getting bogged down in, in the minutiae of details and, and miss this prominent theme, which is Paul and Barnabas begin to hit pay dirt with the Gentiles. 
We sang it earlier. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Is the Lord Jesus the Lord of the whole earth as we sing, or just of the Jews? And truth be told, being Lord of the whole earth, it's exactly what the Old Testament had predicted and precisely what the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, had long ago promised to, uh, to King David. If you would now, don't lose your place in Acts chapter 13, but, but turn a finger to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. This almost became our scripture reading today. Where we'll pick up at verse 12. And we need to know that verse 12 picks up, you know, immediately after David proposed that he would build a house for the Lord. David's like, I'll build a house for the Lord. But instead, God replies to David, and this is my paraphrase, no thank you. No, thank you. Uh, but I rather am going to build a house or a dwelling place. I'm going to build a place to dwell for you, David, by employing one of your descendants, a king, who will also build an eternal kingdom, an eternal dwelling. In, in other words, uh, God told David, you aren't going to build a place for me to dwell. I'm going to build a place for you to dwell. And we'll know by the time we reach verse 19, uh, this prophecy is not describing, not at all describing Solomon or Solomon's temple, uh, but a house, a dwelling that will be built in the distant future by a king who comes a thousand years after David, who builds a dwelling of God through the spirit of God and who gives life to all. In verse 12, the Lord promises King David, this is 2 Samuel 7, through, the, through Nathan the prophet, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I, whom I removed from before you. He tells David, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. So th this divine promise to David, called the Davidic covenant, assures that there would be born an heir who will sit on David's throne, whose kingdom will have no end. And in response, David prays this in verse 18. It says, Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, oh, Who am I? O Lord God, and what is my house that you've brought me this far? And yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord God, for you have spoken also 
of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. And this is the custom of man, O Lord God. So David says, I see this is a distant future. This isn't Solomon. This is out there in the distant future and speaks of a custom, a human custom to designate an heir. Very common among men, uh, the heir David saw far out into the future. Paul and Barnabas declare to Pisidian Antioch, God's promise to David is fulfilled, and that heir is reigning over his kingdom from David's throne. And you can benefit now. This is Colossians 1 verse 13. You can be rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son uh, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Ultimately, God's promise to establish an eternal Davidic dynasty, that that is inaugurated. That, That is fulfilled. So please return now to Acts chapter 13, where Paul has described for the synagogue in Antioch all that God has done for this nation of Israel. Long laundry list of everything he's done, uh, God has done from verses 17 to 22, including granting you a king. And then in verse 23, from the descendants of this man, According to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. So a Savior named Jesus, a descendant of David, according to a promise, God's promise, it's the Davidic covenant, to seat an heir on David's throne. There's no other rational way to take this as some other different promise. This is God's promise to David through a descendant. And in verse 23, the Davidic covenant will see is fulfilled. Uh, Look again at verse 23. From the descendants of this man, David, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus. So, So Israel is not in our day waiting for a savior to come to them to reign on David's throne. That is a very common theological error in our day. But Paul told the Jews in the synagogue in Paul's day that God's promise, the Davidic covenant, is present and effective today. And the evidence that Paul supplies, assuring this promise is effective at this time, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In verses 32 through 37, King David died. His body decayed. Don't overlook that. King David's body decayed, turned to dust. Turned to dust. Whenever I do a graveside burial, there's words that I always that I always speak at each each time. Comes from Genesis, the curse in Genesis, from ashes to ashes and dust. To dust. That's Genesis 3.19. Uh, promise to Adam and all of humanity, death, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return, right? That, that's not poetry, folks. That is reality. 
can visit any cemetery around and you can validate that for yourselves. King David's body died and turned to dust. So will you. So will you. But after King Jesus died, his body did not see decay, but was raised before dawn on the third day. This is a promise written by David in Psalm chapter 16, verse 9, which Paul cites as evidence. Focus your eyes on Acts chapter 13. In verse 35, I'll read from Psalm 16. In Psalm 16, there David declares, this is something, therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. David rejoices, why? My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Who's the Holy One? Jesus. This is the hope. So, so to answer the question, did David believe in a physical resurrection and afterlife? The answer is absolutely. Though David realized he would die and that, that his body would return to dust, it would decay. In Psalm 16, David writes, I rejoice knowing that my flesh will also dwell securely and that my soul will not be abandoned. How could David in the spirit proclaim my flesh will dwell securely? because he saw the Lord God uh, would not allow his Holy One, Jesus, to undergo decay. So David believed in the resurrection of the Holy One, the Christ, and David believed God's promise, this is in the Davidic covenant, to provide David a future dwelling where David's flesh will be restored to living flesh and where he will then dwell securely, a resurrected body. Folks, that, that is something to celebrate. For those who will turn to dust. A thousand years before Christ became flesh and dwelt among us, by divine revelation, David recognized that this future Davidic king through a bodily resurrection, but he would become the first fruits of many brethren who would be raised to new life with imperishable bodies. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, my flesh will also dwell securely. Next in Acts chapter 13, in verse 33, the Apostle Paul also quotes King David again. That's from Psalm chapter 2. Assuring the Jews that David saw his descendant, Christ, would reign over a kingdom, not just Israel, but a kingdom extending to the furthest reaches of the earth, 
And David prophetically writes these words, attributing, uh, they're attributed to Jesus. Says these words in the spirit. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. In Psalm 2, David assures that this, this kingdom of God's son will encompass the whole earth. And David concludes Psalm 2 by writing this, quote, do homage to the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So here again is my summary. I paraphrase of what the Apostle Paul is declaring to the Jews in Galatia. Very important that we grasp this. Paul tells them, this is what your King David believed. Proven by what David himself wrote in the Psalms. Wrote concerning God's promise made to King David, by the way. The future Davidic ruler would be Israel's savior, who unlike us would not see decay, because he will be raised from the dead to reign across the earth. And David also believed the savior of Israel would be God's very own son, and that there would be a future resurrection when the dust that is left from your dead corpse will be raised and restored to flesh in a place where your flesh will dwell securely. David believed in a bodily resurrection of God's son. He didn't have the expanse of understanding that we have. But his writing makes it painfully clear. This is the gospel according to King David. And folks, I haven't even had time to cite Psalm 22, where David writes, they've pierced my hands and my feet. You can go on and on a series six weeks long on this in what David knew about the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul then states in verses 37 to 39, He whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things. He references the law of Moses there, saying, The perfection demanded by the law of Moses... That perfect life that you and I never lived, no chance, only Jesus lived. And through faith in him and in faith in Christ's perfection, you are then freed from the requirement of keeping the law and being perfect. Free from the perfection required, demanded by the law of Moses. And Paul's argument it's nearly identical in content to what Peter told the Jews in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. 
Acts chapter 2. There Peter declared, David, he both died and was buried, but knowing that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, David looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. Peter said back then, this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses, he has been exalted and is seated at the right hand of God. And therefore, Paul and Peter, they're in perfect harmony here. They agree that Christ has fulfilled God's promise to King David to seat an heir upon his throne. And Paul declares to Antioch, the resurrection of Christ in the essence of the faith of King David. And he says, this is what David believed. And then verse 38 offers this warning. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Therefore, take heed so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Here's a quote from Habakkuk. Behold, you scoffers and marvel and perish. For I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe though someone should describe it to you. Even if someone describes it to you, you're not going to believe it. And repeating a warning first given by Habakkuk, before the Jews were exiled for their unbelief, 600 years earlier, Paul warns, I am an accomp I, in Antioch of Pisidia, I am an accomplishing a work among you a work in your days, a work which you will not believe, even if somebody describes it to you. Are the Jews in Pisidian Antioch going to have a great big revival here? Spoiler alert. It doesn't look good. It's not promising. But before we turn to their reaction, let me, let me remind us just once again, what, what David, what, what the king of Israel, what he believed in. David saw a distant king, one of his own physical descendants, who would die, yet would defeat death by being raised even before his body had an opportunity to decay, and who would establish a universal dominion to the ends of the earth that would never end a place where David's own flesh would be restored to dwell securely through an imperishable body. So David believed that both the sting of death and God's curse upon humanity would be reversed in Christ, the Savior of Israel. That's what David believed. The flesh will be restored. This whole death thing, this whole ashes to ashes, dust to dust thing, that's all going to be reversed. 
in a place where my flesh will dwell securely. Therefore, it is essential. It is essential that King David must have believed that even the dust of his own decayed body would be physically resurrected someday to living flesh. And on what basis? According to his own testimony in the Psalms that he wrote, David saw a distant descendant. God's only begotten son, today I've begotten you. King Jesus, who would be born, who would die, and who would be raised from the dead before he decayed, within three days or so. King David believed in his own bodily resurrection from the grave. For this reason, we better beware of evolution. You're like, how did that come in here? Why must we beware? Because to embrace the theory of evolution... You must disbelieve God spontaneously formed Adam out of the dust of the earth. Because evolution does not accept, will not permit, that God has the power to breathe life into dust. Can't function in that theory. Yet Adam died... And he turned to dust. And King David died, and he turned to dust. And unless Christ returns really soon, your body will surely die, and you will turn to dust. And if you do not believe that God first breathed life into the dust to form Adam, then you do not truly believe that God has the ability to raise Adam. With your lips, you can confess all day long. Yeah, I have faith God can and will raise my body from the dead, from the dust of the grave. But if you disbelieve that God first created Adam and Eve from the dust, your words reveal that your heart is empty. Your words are empty. They're void. They're void words. And you actually do not believe that God can restore your bones and your flesh from the dust. Consequently, you're denying the resurrection of the dead. If you deny that God breathed life into Adam from the dust. And through embracing that that lie, that satanic lie that you know that man arose from algae and apes through millions and millions of years through evolution, 
you have testified before God and man that you do not believe that God breathes life into dust. That's denying the resurrection. And therefore, at that point, you do not believe the gospel according to King David. Because David believed his dust would be raised and that his flesh would be restored and that he would dwell securely. David believed God would raise him from the dead. Which in verse 41, Paul says, is a work which you'll never believe. Even if someone, you know, like me, should describe it to you. So in the words of Habakkuk the prophet, not me, because I'm nice. Habakkuk says, marvel. Marvel, you scoffers. And you, and you mockers. And perish. Because you do not believe what King David believed. Now have a nice day. Folks, this is important. The, the theory of evolution is completely incompatible with Christianity and forgiveness of sins because evolution denies the divine power of God required to breathe life into dust needed to resurrect all the millions of bodies of Christians who have died and are laying in their graves today, the dust of their graves, which Scripture promises will be raised to new life when Christ returns. Folks, the doctrine of resurrection is, hinges on this. God breathing life into dust from Genesis all the way through to Revelation, it's an essential doctrine to the Christian faith. Yeah, there, there's just no basis to the claim. Oh yes, I believe that God will raise my body from the grave, but I can't believe that God raised Adam and Eve from the dust. It's an inconsistency. How much more inconsistent can you be? People must repent and believe the gospel according to King David. We don't have a, a lot of time remaining, though I have gone long. Um, the Jews and the Jewish proselytes in Antioch, you know, they initially received this concept of having their own king uh, with enthusiasm. This, this is great. We have, a, we have a Davidic king. Wonderful. They beg to hear these same things spoken to them again, uh, preached to them the following week. It seems some even followed Paul and Barnabas around, uh, initially appearing to be very thrilled and receptive. But the next Sabbath reveals their hypocrisy. You know, the Jews had grown up with such a mindset of ethnic superiority. It was ingrained in them. Uh, they were convinced that the promises of David, his dynasty were reserved only for the benefit of Israel. And now Paul and Barnabas come to town. They roll in communicating clearly this promise is for all the nations of the earth. It was much broader than Israel. But we better be glad about this. 
In verse 44, the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, it's filled with Gentiles, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. You know, if this means we have to be joint citizens, neighbors, with, with uncircumcised Gentiles in this kingdom that is to come, you know, that, that's not what my daddy and my granddaddy promised. We don't want anything to do with Gentiles. You know, my family taught that only Israel and only the Jews are God's people. And the Jews erroneously believed that they were the only ones. This is why Jesus and the gospel are described repeatedly in the Bible as being a stumbling block to the Jews. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The Jews can't get over this. They want it to be just them. Uh, and the Apostle Paul says in 1 Peter chapter 2, and verse 8, For they, speaking of Israel, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. Then Peter continues speaking to non-Jews, you know, Gentiles like you and me. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For you, again speaking to Gentiles, you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Acts chapter 13 and verse 48 reveals the Gentiles are now appointed. Peter says, you are now chosen. And as many were appointed to eternal life, believed, again, election. And the continued disbelief of Israel has turned, it's been turned by God into the grace toward the nations, precisely as Isaiah had foretold. The Gentiles began just rejoicing, glorifying the word of the Lord, that there was actually a path for forgiveness of sins for them. We could handle rejoicing a little bit more over this. That the grace of God extends further than the ethnicity of Israel. And as the Jews began blaspheming in the name of Christ, verse 46, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. <clears throat> and Paul then adds the quote from Isaiah chapter 49, revealing uh, God speaking to Jesus, his son, saying, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord 
and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole regions. Now the Jews not liking this, they, they instigate, instigated a persecution. You know, they drive Paul and Barnabas out of their own out of their district. But as a result of the hardening of of the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel's hardening of heart, the Davidic kingdom will now reach and, and the rule of Christ is now proclaimed across the whole earth and it's being expanded through the Gentiles. Folks, this has been God's promise to his son from long ago. Heard through the Psalms of David, quote, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. And he said to me, you are my son, Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. This is not new news to King David. Let me finish with just one reference, final reference to Isaiah 49. If you'd like to return there briefly, you can. Um, I don't want us to lose sight of this as we ponder the birth of Christ. The Davidic king at Christmas. And this comes from Isaiah chapter 49. Begins by referring even to remote and isolated places, islands. Listen to me, O islands. And pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother he named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he has concealed me. And he has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel in whom I will show my glory. Who is this servant who is born? It's Christ. By what name is he called? Israel. You've probably heard at some point that, that Christ, the Messiah, is referred to as the true Israel. Verse 5, And now says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also make you a light of the nations, so that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Through Jesus, through the servant, through the true Israel, salvation reaches across the whole earth. The Lord refers to his son, uh, his servant, Jesus, as 
Israel. Remember this, folks, when we sing these classic hymns this Christmas. Over the next couple of weeks, because of his birth, if you believe in Jesus, you are grafted into the true Israel. Even if you were born a Gentile. So Romans 11 makes very, very clear. We were grafted into the rich root of Jesse. Not separate. And if you disbelieve in Jesus, you're not in Israel. Even if you were born a Jew, and even if you live in Tel Aviv today, because Roman, Romans 9, 6 assures, not all born in Israel are of Israel. But all who believe in Jesus Christ are of the same faith and are descendants of Abraham and are now ruled over our Davidic king. And therefore we belong to the true Israel. So when the Bible says, Romans 11, verse 26, that all Israel will be saved, it's speaking of you, folks. All believing Israel, Jew and Gentile, all believing Israel. It's not referring to all of the unbelieving ethnic Jews who live in a modern state of Israel. All Israel is referring scripturally to all Gentiles and all Jews who believe in the true Israel, Jesus Christ. He is in whom King David believed that a Savior would be born and a son would be given to reign as king over Israel. This is the gospel according to David. Rejoice, this, this hymn was written, by the way, around 1200 AD. There was no modern state of Israel. Most of these old Christian hymns, be aware, if they're over 70 years old, there was no nation state of Israel when they were written. This one was written from about 1200 AD. Rejoice, rejoice, that means you. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come for thee, O is Irel. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father, as your son is now reaching all nations, every tongue and tribe everywhere, every corner of the earth, uh, the gospel has at some point swept through our lives and because of your grace has caught us up and uh, has showered us with mercy having overlooked our sins that your son might be glorified throughout all of eternity. And as, as we stand here thinking about King David, as he lays in the ground 
uh, complete powder, complete dust. Yet he had a hope in a Messiah to come who would raise him from the dead and restore his flesh and welcome him to a place where he will dwell securely. Father, I pray for each of us here that every single one of us would likewise be raised to dwell with David, with Abraham, all the faithful saints, all true Israel, that we might live through eternity with the Holy One, Jesus Christ, because he has been our Lord, he has become our Savior, and therefore we have become his possession to the glory of you as God our Father. Amen.